Okay. So last week we began uh, a topic and we're going to take uh, tonight and look at part two of the couple of genocidal decrees that are found in the book of Esther. And um, some of these uh, slides are from last week's handout. I have a couple that are new that really are toward the end of the Bible study tonight. So uh, we'll begin tonight with this particular one that we were talking about last week. So if I can get this to advance, there we go. Um, I think we mentioned last week, if my memory serves me correct, that one of the things that we're dealing with when we're talking about some of the violent uh, passages in the Old Testament is how God lets his children tell the story within their context, within their culture, and within their expectations. And so uh, tonight, I want us to uh, just illustrate this with one that's pretty profound, um, that's found in the book, and it's not in the book of Esther, even though we're talking about the book of Esther, but I think it will help us to understand what is happening. So first main point here is when dealing with theological difficulties raised in any text of the Old Testament, uh, what you'll find is that we, um, we must remember where the writers told their story, from what point of view they stole, told the story, uh, what their limitations were, and um, what particular cultural context they were writing from. Look at the book of Esther. Um, there might be some telling points that kind of are giveaway for us understand that this was kind of the normal way of thinking in that day and age. And then, of course, the great challenge that we have in our day and age is what do you do with those type of violent texts as we think about our own lives uh, post-Old and New Testament and um, in each succeeding generation that will continue to open the uh, scriptures, what role do some of these stories play? So to kind of illustrate tonight what, um, what we're dealing with in terms of just the mentality of how they looked at their world, I want you to take your Bible. I want you to turn over to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18. Now, this doesn't have anything to do with Esther, but it's uh, illustrating a point of how uh, God lets those that are involved in the story tell the story from their particular point of view. So here in 1 Kings chapter 18, there is the passage, this quite profound passage of confrontation between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. And um, in this particular uh, context, there is a ruler by the name of Ahab, and um, in verse 20, um, we kind of see that Elijah is going to confront the prophets of Baal. So in verse 20 of 1 Kings chapter 18, it says, so Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? So this is a key point. Um, we do know that Jewish people, as well as pagan people, worship multiple gods, but the Jewish people believed that there was one almighty God, one true God that was over the rest. So 
Elijah is trying to draw his people back into full allegiance with Yahweh. And he says, how long will you waver between two opinions? And here's the key. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Well, how will we know? There's this then confrontation, and it's a lengthy passage. I'm not going to read this whole chapter. But if you're familiar with it, um, it talks about Elijah telling them, um, I am one of the, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. So it's not an even confrontation. But in verse 23, he says, get two bulls for us, let them choose one for themselves and let it them cut into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull, put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. And then the text goes on and said, you call upon your gods. Uh, and if, you know, they light the fire, then we'll know that Baal is the supreme God. But if my, uh, my God lights the fire, it will show that uh, Yahweh is the supreme God. So the text goes on. And the Baal prophets, they pray and they chant and they dance and they cut themselves and nothing. And Elijah wets the altar down and he calls upon the name of the Lord. And um, what happens is in verse 38, so I've skipped a lot of verses. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stone, the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried the lord he is god the lord he is god so what i want you to notice out of this paragraph here is there is in that culture an assumption that if you win the battle whatever that battle may be it shows that your god is on your side which is that ancient mentality that if 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 we're victorious in some way then it will show who the real God is. And in First uh, Kings chapter 18, the battle is between Baal and Yahweh. Throughout the Old Testament, though, you have a number of confrontations between the one true God and let's say the gods of Egypt. And that explains some of the plagues, okay? That each plague is kind of a, um, it is kind of a judgment on the Egyptian gods. And of course, in the Passover, uh, the death of the firstborn, then shows ultimately that this one true God of Israel will lead the people into the promised land. Now, the reason I'm illustrating that is because in order to understand the two decrees in Esther, you need to understand the mentality. So if you come back to the handout, second point is when God lets his children tell the story, um, the way that story is told is deeply influenced by an ancient tribal mindset. And that is true not only in Esther, but in so much of the Old Testament that um, they felt that if they conquered and slaughtered their foes, God was on their side. Okay, so it, does, it doesn't surprise us then that sometimes, and I tried to show that this past Sunday morning, there's over-exaggeration many times to kind of pump up the story to show that um, uh, the God of Israel is the one true God. So this dynamic is stamped all over the Old Testament. 
And it's kind of a way of understanding why the Bible behaves the way it does. When God chose to give his word, he did not give a rule book. He primarily gave a story book. And in those stories, these human authors tend to shade these stories to make themselves look more favorable. And that's not always true. The unique thing about the Bible is sometimes it honestly tells the story and brings condemnation back upon those that were guilty of going and following after other gods and so forth. But nonetheless, it doesn't entirely get away from the fact that you have these stories that really emphasize, just like the verse I read in 1 Kings 18, 38. It's just, it's not enough that the fire was started when Elijah called on the Lord. It burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up every drop of water as well. So you see that kind of over-the-top explanation that the one true God is not Baal, but it is Yahweh. So that's just kind of an understanding. And when you take that back into some of these violent passages in the Old Testament, then you will begin to understand why it's told the way it is told and why this decree that we're going to look at next, Mordecai's decree, is written the way it is written. Okay, so uh, in the book of Esther, if you want to come back to the book of Esther now, where we find Mordecai's decree is uh, in chapter 8. And I want us to come, just so we refresh our memory here, uh, I, this edict that is written by Mordecai that counteracts Haman's decree, it says this in verse 11 of Esther 8. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble, uh, to protect themselves, and we're good with that. But then this is added, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack their women and children and to put the property and to plunder the property of their enemies. So the second half of that decree makes you scratch your head a little bit. I thought it was the descendants of the Amalekites that Haman is a part of, and that's the primary people group that is the enemy of uh, the Jews. What we find, though, is this is any nationality. So if you look at your handout, um, it, a couple of points might help us to understand why this decree is written the way that is, it is written. First point, Mordecai writes legislation giving the Jews the right to defend themselves against Haman's army or legions. Yet the right to defend was only a small, small part of the decree. In verse 11, we see that it is added on to, that they're allowed to attack any uh, nation that might be deemed their enemy. Then what about the killing of the women and children and the taking of the spoils of war? Now, what we find is they choose not to take the spoils of war, but um, nonetheless, what we find is it is a pretty fleshed out decree when we think about the possibilities that are within it. So the key question is, why did Mordecai write this the way that he did? And I think the key might be in verse nine. 
of chapter 8. So if you go back a couple of verses, it says here, at once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month of the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews, ah, not just to the Jews. Here, you have the right to defend yourself, but notice who else this decree is written to. It is written to the satraps, the governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province. So all the, uh, all the unique languages that are within this 127 province region. So this decree is translated into a variety of different languages here and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. And Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. Now, why is that paragraph there? So what you find is here in your notes, the letter is dispatched to every governor in the far-flung provinces of the whole Persian Empire. And that is, I think, is pretty important to keep in mind for the second point here. This decree is not about localized opposition, but it's about who's going to control the machinery of the empire. In other words, who when civil war breaks out, who is the provincial army's police fire and fire department? Whose side are they gonna be on? Okay, let's go back a couple months. One of the big things that has been complained about in the, the uh, attack on our own capital was that the police was not dispatched or, or National Guard was not dispatched uh, quickly to help quell that riot, okay? So now the great question becomes, well, who was the National Guard and other individuals like that? Whose side were they on? Were they on the side of those inside the Capitol building or were they on the side of those that were rioting? Is that why there's a de delay in getting there? So the question comes up when a civil war breaks out, and that's what we're talking about here. In each province, a civil war has the potential of breaking out. Those that are in power in those regions to keep order, the local uh, authorities, are they going to allow um, those attacking the Jews to go ahead and attack the Jews, or are they going to come to the Jews' defense? Are they going to allow the Jews to kill their enemies, or are they going to come to the defense of, in many cases, their own nationality? So I think there's an angle here in trying to understand Mordecai's decree as to why it's written the way it is written. When we think about the way it's written, the way it hits us is, oh my goodness, Mordecai wants to annihilate everyone. But it, there might be a motivation that's going on there to set them up for the ability to defend themselves 
because of the local authorities in each of the provinces. So let me stop there and see if you have some thoughts, questions, or comments on any of that. Does that make sense? That the decree could possibly be a political thing that will help set up the police and fire departments when mobs start to converge on this day at ADAR, will they stand by and watch or will they intervene? So for you to think about, and is that why it is written the way it is written, okay? And then you have the, the potential of taking those words to heart and, um, and we see then in chapter nine, as we looked at on Sunday, there are 500 people killed, uh, the 10 sons of Haman, 75,000 people killed, and I think it was another 300 that were killed. Did they take the decree of Mordecai literally and used it as an excuse um, to go over the top? in killing those they perceived as their enemy and were they real in real potential danger or not? We're reading between the lines. We don't know, but it very well could be that they took the decree of Mordecai as a green light to go ahead and attack those that they perceived were their enemies, whether it was historical enemies or immediate within um, in the immediate danger. So thoughts there? Anybody have some thoughts there, comments there? So we're working with two things, culture, the way it works then. We're, uh, we're talking about context of the Old Testament. We're talking about uh, people. And another example of that is the battle between King David and Goliath. Whoever wins that battle, battle shows whose God is mightier, okay? So that's just the mentality. But I think when it comes to Mordecai's decree, there's a little bit more politics that's going there than, um, than what we might first notice. Other thoughts? Okay, just a couple more um, points here. So Mordecai knows whatever decree he writes in the name of the king must counteract the first decree that's written by Haman. So every provincial governor has a decision to make. Think about the governors in these 127 provinces. Um, their, their region could possibly see civil war uh, take place. Um, and how are they going to react? Uh, will they react or will they refuse to act? See, this is not new stuff that we're talking about here in our own day. It goes back thousands of years. So Mordecai's decree needs to be every bit as violent, I guess, as the first one to pressure the politicians to intervene and to act. Um, you have Haman's decree that's over the top, kill all the Jews. Mordecai's decree is over the top kill any nationality that's deemed an enemy of the Jews. And you can see the political pressure that would put on those that are governing those 127 provinces. 
thoughts there, comments there? Well, that's the key question, okay? Why did they go ahead and act upon that? And if and and since they did, did they see that as a license, Mordecai's decree, to kill those that they hated? And and there's where the conundrum comes in. The Jews hated the Amalekites just as much as the Amalekites hated the Jews. And so this gave license to the Jews to use the army that they had been building up for a number of months. Okay, so that will bring us to a question. So when you read Old Testament violent passages, it really does kind of muddy the waters when it comes to war. And the key question that comes up is, what can be deemed as a just war? So over the years, there has developed what is called a just war theory. Uh, and um, it's kind of built on three things. Number one, taking human life is seriously wrong. So you shouldn't just invade and kill people on a whim. Two, states should have the duty to defend their citizens and to, to defend justice. So that kind of takes away uh, the idea of tribal um, warfare in the sense that those that are in charge that have the authority over all the citizens should get involved to make the decision. And number three, uh, protecting innocent human lives and defending important moral values sometimes requires the willingness to use force and violence when it's being attacked. So those are kind of three big points that are often used to say, when going to war, is it just or not? Um, and is it a first response or is it a last response type of thing? And uh, then um, are the states that are involved uh, truly defending the citizens and keeping them safe? Or is this war about something else? Is it about control of whatever uh, resources and, and that type of thing? Um, so this particular theory called just war theory uh, specifies conditions that I guess um, then eases the mind of people that say, we're not. We're going to to war. We're sacrificing the young men and women that are in our armed forces for the right reasons, and it's kind of putting a condition upon uh, how a war should be fought. So you'll notice uh, up here on the screen. I ran out of space on the handout. Uh, there's two Latin terms: "jus ad bellum." which is used the conditions under which the use of military force is justified. And jus and bello is how do you conduct a war in an ethical manner? So these two things are kind of um, set into this just war theory. Uh, and how do, you, how do you balance those two things out? So that is a discussion that has developed over the course of hundreds of years to number one say, if we're going to war, is it being done for a just reason? So 
you know, you think about the many years of war, um, um, you think about the Crusades, is that just war on what they did to many of the Muslims and, and that type of thing. And so what happened was over the years, there was the development of just war. Now, you try to take that, put that back into the Old Testament violent text, and sometimes you might find that it will meet some of those criterias, and other times it won't. And so in the case of Mordecai's decree, um, is that a is something that would live up to kind of a just war protocol, or does it fall short of that? I don't know. What are your thoughts on, on that? I think Estes already said, well, why did they kill as many people as they did? Um, which would suggest that to me, and I already showed my hand on Sunday, that it was over the top, that, that you know, but it also might be some exaggeration going on there as well. Some other thoughts on that? What, what your thoughts are? Right. Non-combatants, right. Yeah, why did they kill the women and the children? Any other thoughts on that? Okay, now you bring our Christianity into this. Now remember, um, Mordecai and Esther are devout Jews and they're following uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. However, they're still stuck in a context um, that is basically, this is the way the world works back in that day. Now we were not. So um, how do we develop some Christian attitude toward war? So at different times, there are kind of three main attitudes when it comes to this particular problem. Number one is um, pacifism. And you have groups like um, uh, the Anabaptists in church history, Amish, uh, Mennonite, that type of thing that are considered pacifists. They uh, will not uh, use violence uh, of any sort. Um, and what you find is that on the other end of the spectrum, there are those that use their religious beliefs that conduct holy war um, you know, jihadists, that type of thing, the belief that this violence will advance God's will. And then what we were just talking about, just war, war is at best a necessity um, that, uh, that the conduct should be governed by certain rules. So um, when you look at where the church has been, the earliest Christians, I mean, first century, second century, uh, were, were pacifistic. They, they did not take up arms. Um, they chose to follow Jesus' lead when he said, those that live by the sword will die by it. Um, they chose not to fight. That's why there was a lot of Christian martyrs in the first, second, and even part of the third century. Uh, they believed it was God's will for them to accept whatever their fate may be. Then you come to, um, as I mentioned, uh, there are certain groups like the Quakers and, and others that hold that even to this day. When it comes to holy war, 
it's historically linked with the Crusades. Um, it is the idea of advancing God's will, advancing God's kingdom by the sword. I might say that the beginning uh, years of our own country, um, there was a holy war against Native Americans as well. And it was believed that we had this manifest destiny to be able to conquer the land and move westward and use all the resources of the land. Um, I would say that most Christians probably don't feel real comfortable with that type of holy war mentality. It might simply be because, especially us in the West, we have been the targets of holy war by Muslims and jihadists. Uh, not Muslims, that's a wrong way of putting it. Uh, shouldn't condemn the religion, but the extremes of that religion, the jihadists, um, um, have used holy war against us. And that's what has been kind of the foundation of terrorism. So I would think most Christians kind of fall in this third category of just war. And it seems as though it had, uh, had grown um, in the course of the rise of Christianity over the centuries. In other words, just war continued to gain momentum uh, the longer Christianity had been around. Uh, and it's still a major strand in, in thought even today. Um, and so um, even today, there are individuals that are fully devoted followers of Christ that would say, hey, I have no problem with war. We, when we need to use it, we'll use it. But I think they would clarify that there should be certain rules to war that should be kept in place. For example, women, children, non-combatants, that type of thing. I think the next screen will help us on that. So what is a just war criteria then? Well, uh, these sectors developed this concept of a just war uh, on these conditions. Number one, is it a just cause that you're trying to achieve? Number two, has it been declared by a lawful authority? Number three, is there a right intention behind it? Number four, is it a last resort? And I would tend to think that this is the one we violate the most. We don't use war as a last resort. A lot of times it's toward the top of the list. Um, and then last, another, um, another concept that's part of just war theory is is there a reasonable chance of success if we go into war? Or are we stepping into an unwinnable war that will have us tied into that war for decades? Think of the Vietnam War. Think of what's happened in Afghanistan over the last 25 years. In other words, we get involved in something that has no real criteria to determine have we won or have we actually lost this war? It kind of gets cloudy like that. So if you look at those things, then what you can find is, okay, use these criterias. And if we do look at these criterias, how does God look upon the necessity to use violence? Now, then uh, there is a couple of other things that's used as criteria. Innocent people should not be harmed. In other words, 
if there's going to be an advancement militarily, it should target other military individuals that you're not burning villages to the ground. Okay, that type of thing. Um, only appropriate force should be used, uh, not over the top uh, type of violence that could exterminate an entire people group. So here you're looking at um, seven things that have been traditionally used to determine whether it is a just war or not. Now, why do I bring this up? Because when you look at violent text in the Old Testament, once you understand culture, once you understand context, does some of the passages meet these criterias? And they are operating without any necessarily knowledge of these criteria. As I mentioned before, there's two Latin terms that are used for this. Uh, one is is ad bellum, uh, the criteria to be in place before a war is uh, prosecuted. And then the other one is uh, ad bello, a criteria for the moral conduct once the war is started that you're not uh, doing, um, unfortunately, what happened during the Vietnam War, uh, the dropping of Agent Orange on entire people groups, burning entire villages and that type of thing. So it's a complicated topic. It really is. And it's not real easy to take this into the Old Testament and every time you encounter a violent text to say, ah, oh, that meets just war criteria. Okay, as we look back on it, again, they don't think in those terms. They think in terms of survival. They think in terms of, is God going to allow us to uh, defeat our enemy or not? Well, let me stop there. I can file some thoughts, questions, comments that you might have. Well, that's a... Authority. That's a great question. And he says that the, their intentions are right. So basically, SD, if you couldn't hear her on Zoom, uh, is who determines what is a just cause? Who and who is the lawful authority that determines whether we should go to war or not? And how can you tell if it's the right intention or not? So I would say. Uh, in our own context here, those first three things there, just cause declared by lawful authority and right intention, <clears throat> probably, it probably boils down uh, ultimately to our commander in chief, but those that are, um, uh, that surround him that make up his cabinet as well. Um, but um, sometimes you wonder what, is deemed a just cause or not. Um, you know, for example, when we are attacked and we lose uh, a few thousand people, is it a just cause to go, go and kill 100,000 people? Do you see what I'm saying? It, it, what is, is that just if it's counterbalanced between a small group of people versus a large group of people and so forth? And then I think also... Um, maybe one thing that's not on here is um, what does it do to the surviving people when you destroy factories, bridges, infrastructure, and all these things, can people even survive, make a living and have enough food on the table? It, it, it gets 
complex. And even though militarily destroying that bridge or destroying that factory is within the, um, it's within the probably the right scheme to, to, uh, to advance, uh, to win the war, yet at the same time, how many refugees will this cause? Uh, how many starving people will this cause? How many people will be uh, homeless, jobless, all that type of thing? Uh, th there's a lot of things that go into this. And I'll, 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 I think we don't think through that. I think whenever we've been attacked, we always have to retaliate without thinking of the residual effects of it. That's just my own opinion on that. But, um, but any comments there on, on any of that? Well, you can scale it down. It just doesn't have to be all out war. You can mm -hmm. take it down quite a few steps and uh, of was a life person bombs an, um, an abortion clinic. Mm -hmm. You know, he's yeah. saying God will justify this because I'm trying to, to save unborn children. Yeah. But, you know, other people will say, no, it doesn't justify it. Yeah, right. You're right. You're exactly right. Um, and and you, you can see even the mentality um, can filter down to individuals. So what's the most recent shooting that we've had? Well, in Georgia and Atlanta, there was three spas where an individual went in and killed Asian women primarily uh, because there is the thought that the Chinese are a threat to us because this has been called the Chinese uh, pandemic and all that type of thing. So an individual gets this in their mind and thinks that it's a just cause uh, to do this type of thing. And that's kind of what you're talking about, Shelley, in the case of an individual that, uh, you know, will go and kill an abortion doctor or a bomb in an abortion clinic or whatever it may be. Um, and um, I guess you have to counter that with the teachings of Jesus. Whether it's large scale or smaller scale, you have to, you also have to wrestle with this, okay? So how does just uh, war uh, inter intercede, intersect rather with the Sermon on the Mount? So, uh, you know, Matthew's chapter five, six, and seven, uh, Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says statements like this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons or children of God. And if you exegete it, um, what is Jesus talking about in the Beatitudes? He's probably talking about kingdom value. He says that he's fulfilling the Old Testament uh, teachings. And um, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Um, and then the interpretation of it could be countered with this. Well, peacemaking is not the same thing as peacekeeping. Um, we are to be peacemakers, um, but there are times when uh, you have to keep the peace and you have to use some force to do that. Uh, then another way of looking at it might be focus more 
uh, that uh, Jesus is focusing more on personal uh, individuals rather than collective nations going to war. So he's not talking about that. So you can exegete that statement a few different ways. Then you go to the other side and uh, Jesus will say, you have heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So here's how different people kind of interpret that. Um, again, the focus is more on the personal rather than the collective. So if somebody attacks you, do your very best to not retaliate. Um, uh, the passage doesn't say if someone stabs you on the right uh, uh, on the right of the chest, um, you know, then in other words, somebody slaps you is not the same thing as a, a life-threatening uh, weapon that could take your life. So there's different ways uh, commentators have looked at this. And I guess the discussion point when you bring the Sermon on the Mount into this discussion is this question. Do any of these type of passages, not just these two, but any of them like it, shed any light on morality in war situations? And this is not an easy discussion. It's, it's, it's difficult to get to the heart of this because you're thinking beyond personal individuals. You're thinking collective um, as a whole too. So I don't think I've clarified anything tonight. I think I'm just showing you it's a tough topic and different people will fall in different camps on this. And in their mind, they feel that they are just in the decision that they have made because it is such a complicated topic. But what I wanna do, and you're gonna to have to look at the screen here, um, you don't have, and up because I added a few slides from last week. Uh, what do Jewish scholars think about these violent uh, uh, things? So the first thing that we find is um, there is in Matthew chapter 26, kind of a cycle of violence in the garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus, when, uh, when Peter cuts off the ear of the soldier, he says, that all those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Uh, so the exegesis of that or the interpretation of that is violence will lead to more violence. Um, and again, okay, is that true just individually or is that true nationally as well? So if you go to some Jewish scholars, some of the things that uh, they have said um, regarding the decree of Mordecai, is quite interesting. So uh, the slaughter that occurs as a result of Mordecai's decree has troubled even Orthodox Jewish scholars. So the first one is Ellis Abram, Abraham Davidson, and he's a uh, prominent educator. And he was an individual that was involved in, in the publication of the Hebrew Bible uh, and um, he said uh, a couple of things he, about this. He's, um, he basically had said that there is an apologetic position for the messy, busy, messy business of bloodletting. And there is a doubt that any Jew celebrating Purim would really understood the gravity 
of what they were celebrating. So he talks about now Purim as the ongoing annual celebration of this, uh, this violence that occurred through Mordecai's decree. And uh, he says, most Jews probably don't even think about that. Now Purim has simply become a national holiday, just like St. Patrick's Day. Here it is, St. Patrick's Day, okay? We just eat corned beef and wear green, and we don't really get much thought about St. Patrick himself or even the history of St. Patrick. Uh, well, the same thing is true about Thanksgiving, too. You're exactly right. Uh, thinking about how Native Americans came to the aid of some of the first settlers, only to find that they were continually um, pushed out of their land and, and that type of thing uh, uh, subsequently. So uh, Ellis Abraham Davidson says, uh, most Jews don't even equate Purim with the, uh, the slaughter anymore. It's just part of the religious calendar. Another individual, though, um, uh, an individual named Shalem Dean, a writer and Hasidic Jew, um, has credited the holiday Purim for accelerating his decision to leave Orthodox Judaism, which is interesting. As he wrote, I wanted a world uh, I wanted a world in which 75,000 dead makes one shudder, if ever so slightly, before enjoying hamatashin, the cookies, and whiskey. So in other words, he's saying, this bothers me that we can celebrate this, um, this event by eating and drinking. And, um, and in this week's message on Sunday, I'm going to show you how Jews celebrate Purim today. And there's a lot of festivities that go along with that. But that caused him to leave the Orthodox faith because they were not taking what actually was the impetus of this holiday seriously. So does Purim have a place in the Jewish faith today? I find a contemporary rabbi, he is the rabbi um, of the Sinai Synagogue out in Los Angeles. And he has um, a podcast that I listen to quite often. And he talks about um, Purim being a holiday of masks, which is interesting. Um, he talks about how a mask um, is what the Jews have had to wear for so many uh, generations to hide their identity and to secure their safety. And so he said, um, Purim is important because it's the one holiday that allows Jews to be Jews, take off the masks of trying to assimilate in culture. And so I'm just going to read this here. Purim is a holiday, a mask. A mask doesn't fully change you, but it obscures identity, distorting who you are. A mask permits you to assume a, different, a slightly different way of being in the world. In our day, we appreciate why Purim is a holiday in masks. In the diaspora, Jews were forced to wear masks all of the time. In Muslim lands, we were uh, demi, second-class citizens subject to a vast range of indignities. But there was no pr uh, protest against the status for Jews 
were powerless to change it. We wore the mask of acceptance and accommodation. In Christian Europe, Jews were regularly exiled, persecuted, belittled, targeted for conversion, and sometimes killed. But in country after country, they doned the mask of the willing subject because rebellion against their situation only made it worse. The few who did, did not wear a mask, the Mordecais who did not bow down, paid a terrible price. So um, you can kind of even today kind of see and feel this tension uh, simply because of the long history of the Jewish people. Any thoughts on David Wolf's, uh, Wolpe's thoughts there? So that's why he thinks that Purim is still an important part of Jewish um, uh, legacy and, uh, and, and tradition. Um, he will go on and say, with the founding of the state of Israel, Jews finally took their masks off. This is who we are. And uh, we're a free people who can practice our own traditions. He then says, many prefer the way things were in the age of the original Purim, the time of the frightened diaspora uh, to the Jewish situation today. Yes, they hated the Jews who were scared as well, but at least there was a measure of control. He says, as Purim ends across the world in our day, we can take off, uh, take our costumes off because the Jewish people never need wear masks again. So he's a, he's a pretty profound thinker, uh, David Wolpe who was a current uh, rabbi out at Mount Sinai Synagogue. Okay, here's my final thoughts on this. Um, and um, another rabbi, David uh, Polish, says holidays like Purim and Mardi Gras are marked by a raucous atmosphere, the excessive consumption of intoxicants, masks, and costumes. And both fall per before perhaps the major religious observance of their respective traditions. So you think of Mardi Gras, you go wild before Lent begins, that leads to Easter. And then how Purim is the predecessor to Passover. And um, so that's just an observation that he has. Uh, Purim is about the capacity, capacity of ordinary people to do extraordinary things. It's all about acting in the face of fear and it's about speaking truth to power. Like most history involving independence, the morality of the decrees has been forgotten in the ongoing legacy of survival. And so when we look back on the decree of Mordecai, <clears throat> is it moral or is it immoral? Most Jews today is, would say that's beside the point. The point is, it's a part of our tradition. It's a part of who we are. And we have the freedom to be who we are. Uh, and so it's easily forgotten or buried in terms of what initiated that tradition. Uh, that is the decree of Mordecai. So that's what I have tonight. Let's open it up. Um, do you have other thoughts or questions or comments that you might have on this um, two-part study on genocidal decrees in the book of Esther. Well, you're 
Is anybody saying anything in the room? Okay. Not right now. Okay. Yeah. I think they're afraid to. Go ahead, Shelly. <laughs> you guys all know I'm by now that I'm an original Star Trek fan. Uh -huh. And in the, uh, what you were talking about in war, whether it's justified or that moral, in one of the episodes, they had distilled war down on a planet that all it was were computer strikes. And then the people walked into these machines if they were considered a casualty. So that all their bridges stayed up, all their artwork stayed fine. It wasn't destroying the culture. It was just getting... What do you mean by walked into the machines? I, you mean... In the air. What do you mean they, by they, they walked into the machines? machines. That they, they were disintegrated them or what? Yeah, just kind of made them disappear. Oh, okay. And the, you know, of course, Captain Kirk and his crew had to tell them how wrong that was and made them face the reality of real wars. But it, you know, I guess society could actually go that way if they wanted to get rid of the destruction and boiled it down that far. Yeah. Well, in a very real way, I'm glad you brought that up. That is the whole premise of the whole David and Goliath narrative. You bring forth your best warrior. We'll bring yes. forth our best warrior. Whoever wins, the, that, the loser is subject to the winner. It's, it, it was a way of preventing casualty in, in many ways. So you do, get, you do see part of that a little bit in a, a couple different places. Yeah, I, you know, I, things don't change. So, I mean, if you look at, so we celebrate the end of World War II, or they particularly did that early on, or World War I with Veterans Day. And, you know, look at, look at what we did at the end of World War II in terms of, you know, two atomic bombs that killed, you know, 100, you know, large numbers of people. I think, you know, in firebombing in, you know, cities in Germany, killed three, you know several hundred thousand civilians so i mean and then yeah and then we we then we have these anniversaries of world war ii you know that we celebrate and stuff and you kind of go this doesn't sound that you know it's kind of weird now it's not purim you know mm -hmm. that annual, an annual religious holiday but you know in some some sense we do celebrate events that were concluded by very um Hor horrific, you know, uh, events. And mm -hmm. World War II is probably the best, probably the best example. And, and yet we don't think we'll celebrate the end of World War II. And yet we don't. We'll justify some of that by you know they justify the atomic bombing by saying more people would have been killed if they had had to um, you know go into Japan and land and all that. And, and that may be true, but it's, it's, there's still some 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 similarities there between these things if you think of being historical and yet they happen just so it's, it's uh, well, i'm glad you brought that up because that's a that's a great um that's a great example let's take memorial day as an example so memorial day supposedly is a time where we reflect upon those that we have lost in war but just like Karim, we have really kind of forgotten 
that that's what that's for. So what is Memorial Day to us? It's the beginning of summer, basically. Uh, you get a day off. Many of us will have picnics. What's that? Get your flowers planted. Yeah, that type of thing. So Memorial Day is, is all about getting summer started more than actually reflecting upon the lives that were lost in these wars. And yet at the same time, that's kind of the, the last point on this last slide, uh, you know, the morality of some of this type of stuff has been forgotten in the ongoing legacy uh, that it continues. So each year in our calendar, we look forward to Memorial Day and it's not really to sit and to ponder and to meditate. It's really in, in the course of events that it, it's a part of a tradition that begins the next cycle or the next season in, in many respects. So I, I think there's some similarities there with Purim as well. And you're gonna see, cause I, uh, this Sunday, as we talk about how Jews celebrate the festival of Purim, it really, really is interesting that it is very similar uh, to kind of the Mardi Gras festivity. Uh, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a time to party more than anything. And, um, and yet at the same time, it, it is something that began with, well, God, that unseen hand of God allowed us to have a victory in a very dangerous situation. So I think you're, I think you're exactly right, bud. There's, we don't, it, it doesn't fit us that are living in our current um, in our current day and culture nearly as much as, and I don't even know the history of when Memorial Day started off the top of my head, but I imagine in, the closer you were to the conflict, the more meditative or, or somber that type of thing might've been because you really were thinking about lives that were lost more than planning your petunias. So, I mean, um, you know, so it's just the way human nature, I guess, kind of works. But other thoughts? Okay, so we didn't get around to the morality of Esther tonight because I thought it, it, it would need enough time to kind of finish this off. Next Wednesday, we're going to talk about the morality of Esther. Was she, was she good? Was she bad? Or somewhere in between. Okay, so that's what we'll do next week. Any final thoughts before we say good, good night? No. Thanks, Larry. All right, you're welcome. Thank you. Thanks for contributing. Okay, take care. Bye bye. Bye.